Welcome to the She Is podcast. Come join us as we share with each other the stories that make us who we are. Our hope is that you're challenged and encouraged to keep boldly writing your story. Hey guys, I'm so excited today. I have my friend Wendy with me and um, she has a really incredible story and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Wendy, would you be willing to introduce yourself? Um, sure. Um, I'm Wendy and um, you and I have met through church, so we know each other through Graceway. I love to travel. I'm a mom. I'm a grandma. I'm a social worker. Um, my heart is just to help those that that um, don't have access to things get connected. And I know that heart grew out of just all of the back trauma that I have and just kind of funneling that back out to do good things for others. Yeah. 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 Wendy is an adventurer. She is always off on another adventure. So um, she has lots of stories to tell of places she's been. Today, Wendy was very courageous to be willing to share a story from her life with us. And I was wondering, would you be willing to read that now? Sure. So when I think about my story, I never truly know where to begin. My life was just one big traumatic event after another for as long as I can remember. One thing that always remained the same is I always knew there was God and I always felt him with me. I just knew that I was just too ugly of a soul to deserve such a love. So I ran from it. My earliest memories in life are those of being molested by five different family members. Um, this happened from the age of five years old. That's about as far back as I can remember until the age of 13 years old. The experience of being molested set me up for just this lifetime of sexual exploitation and abuse. I've been raped three times. Um, I was homeless as a teenager and again in my 30s. I've been sold for money. Um, I've been severely beaten, had broken bones, numerous hospital visits, police involvement, etc. list goes on and on. Um, indulged in drugs and alcohol just to kind of numb the pain. Attempted suicide twice, once as a teenager and again in my 30s, and was in a very mentally, verbally abusive marriage and suffered some pretty um, significant health problems from the stress and trauma throughout my life. Um, but as bleak and terrible as all that may seem, through it all, I had the Savior that was protecting me, loved me, and brought people into my life to help me. I do not believe that I ever loved myself until I was given the gift of friendship from an amazingly kind and loving woman. And these was the darkest days of my life. And I have no doubt that God brought her into my life for the sole purpose of showing me how to love myself. I was in my late 30s. I was 38 to be exact. Um, and the world had just been so cold to me that it took almost 30, 40 years for me to understand that I was worth loving. The person is now my absolute closest, dearest friend. She loved me on the ugly days just as much as she did on the good days. She remained solid and constant no matter what I threw her way. Um, she never let me feel as if I was drowning, but instead she made me feel as if I could do more than just keep my head above water. She made me believe that I could thrive. So it's through this picture of perfect love to me that I was able to make a choice to love me. 
This love opened a door for others to come in and aid me through my journey. I was filled with hope and dreams, and these were two things that I had lost the ability to fill. Truthfully, I don't recall having dreams for myself past the age of eight or nine years old, and that's when I wanted to become an astronaut. Um, I certainly had no hope in life. I had become a mother, and I had hopes for my children, but just not for myself. And now with this love for my friend, I understood that God's love was a personal gift for me to treasure and to build upon. Before I knew it, I was not only dreaming, but these dreams were coming true. Things that I had never even imagined for myself were happening. I began to walk away from the things that were hurting me. I learned to just say no to pain. <laughs> and then the most magical, special thing happened to me. God showed me how to just take this pain, to transform it into power, and to give it to others that desperately needed to feel love. So my past pains were now serving others on their path to healing. Then I enrolled in college, and I did not stop until I completed my master's degree in social work. I became involved in community service work and speaking engagements, and I'm able to do all of these things because God brought a relationship to me and changed my life through that relationship, a relationship that has provided a clear picture of God's love towards me, a relationship that encouraged me to have a direct relationship with God himself. My life now is far from perfect, but it has an anchor. The anchor that was always there, I just never knew how to access it. So now I just shout out to God all throughout my day. I tell him everything, even the angry stuff. And he just still loves me anyway. That's awesome. And listening to you read your story, I just have so many emotions. You know, it's it's almost like the gamut of emotions, you know, as you as a little girl, you know, I'm angry and want to protect you and as a teenager, you know, I, I just have compassion seeing the, the hard things that you went through and feeling like I would see why that girl was struggling so much. Um, and then uh, just the, the part where you talked about um, your friend coming in and, and loving you. And um, I don't know that I ever would have thought that, a fr that one friendship could have made uh, such a difference in someone's life. Do you, do you feel like you had felt that way before then? I don't think I had ever felt that way, not to the level of impact that she had. I mean, you know, there had been people throughout that might show a moment of kindness, but nobody ever stuck it in to say mm -hmm. like the change starts inside, you know? Um, so no, I think that was the first time that I'd ever seen that. Uh, at the beginning of your story, you talked about uh, knowing or always believing that there was a God. Do you know where that came from or was that just instilled? It was instilled. Um, both my parents were raised Catholic, went to Catholic schools, Catholic families, you know, large families. Um, it, the very, the ritualness of always, you know, every, mass every Sunday, yeah. you know, everybody went through catechism classes and all that. And um, so I was just kind of, given that part from my parents, but, and I, I can't speak for all Catholics around the world, um, but I know for myself that that religion and, and the way that I was brought up in my home, it just felt more like a guilt and shame process and not a relationship with God. Um, 
because you're taught, you know, you, you say your rosary and you pray to Mary and you pray this to Joseph and, you, you know, all these other saints, but they don't ever really say, hey, why don't you just get down and talk with God? So um, I really felt that separation. And growing up with that kind of trauma, you, you very young catch on to the idea that what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? Why is this happening to me? Oh, interesting. So do you feel like that's where, like I heard like the self-contempt in like the second sentence where you said that you were too ugly of a soul to deserve love. Do you feel like that's where that self-contempt came from? So, I mean, I know that it has. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is something that this is kind of, um, well, it's just segue of what we're already talking about. But I recently had an enormous challenge in life. And um, just something came, somebody said something, you know, in a professional setting that that really shouldn't have been said. And it opened up this huge, just gaping wound that I had closed up, Mm. you know. Um, And it, it just was like an entire lifetime of trauma coming back and processing it all again. And, um, I mean, like I lost sleep and couldn't eat for several days. And honestly, it wasn't until I showed up to church and asked my prayer group to, Hey, can I share this with you guys? And then they all came and prayed over me that I was able to kind of walk through that. Um, but the story goes like this. So I had a brother who was molesting me and I, I, like I said, I know at five years old, it was happening. Um, and when I was eight or about two weeks before I turned eight years old on father's day, um, he had kind of pushed me further than he had before and told me to do something that I hadn't done before. And we, that was earlier in the day. And then we were leaving to go to my uncle's for father's day celebration, which is where our family um, did most of their celebrating. He had a nice big place, you know, and everybody would go there together. And, um, so he had kind of pushed me further than I wanted to. And most of these things happened, you know, either while I was sleeping or in the bathroom. This particular day, it was in the bathroom before we were getting ready to go. And and I remember my dad came, you know, yelling down the hall, where are you guys at? We're ready to go. And um, he had me kind of trapped in the, the bathroom and, and he made his way out and then told me to figure it out, you know, so we wouldn't get caught, all the stuff he would set up for me. Um, but this particular day, I just remember the only thing that kept going through me was, you know, just God, why don't you make this stop? Just make this stop, make it stop. Mm-hmm. And my brother died that day. Oh no. And so as this almost eight-year-old girl, I held on to the fact that I felt like my prayer got answered, answered. Oh. by my d- brother dying. Wow. And that death literally ripped everything a part of my whole family you know cousins no longer hung out we no longer went to my uncle's house you know because my cousin was driving the motorcycle that in essence killed my brother yeah um but I internalized all of that to Mm -hmm. my begging God to make it stop sure and so I literally did I can even remember five years later at 13 years old breaking down in my bathroom at home still holding on to this thing that I had caused this pain and still seeing my mother aching over the loss of her child and and I just knew I was the thing that caused that and so I kind of just really grew up thinking that I was the source of evil and that I wasn't to be kind and to throw in the mix of all of that I always felt that if I had been the pretty one 
or the beautiful one. I have a hard time today still being somebody telling me that I'm using the word beautiful um, because I felt like if I had been, then nobody would have hurt me when I was a kid. Somebody would have been there to stand up. I would have felt a presence, you know, like a, a real physical presence. And I never had that. And so I think that that trauma and the abuse that happened to me caused me to feel that way. Interesting. Oh man, that story is tragic. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think about how Satan just twists things to, you know, for you to have the self-contempt that you had, or even to feel like you had a part in your brother's death. Um, yeah, it's just, it was devastating. Do you feel like uh, you had any resources like at that point to work through it or your parents saw? Well, I had none because think about it. This is the seventies. So you didn't talk about abuse. You didn't talk about things that happened in the family. Um, and again, my parents being raised Catholic, like if they went to somebody, they would have only gone to the church. So you only oh. go talk to the priest, but then, you know, that's a small circle and then you don't want the neighbors to find. So who do you ever talk to, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I know of, I never spoke to anybody but I guess one of my brothers or somebody had noticed that one of my stepbrothers was kind of just really inappropriate with me all the time. And they addressed that. But to this day, none of the adults in my life ever came and directly asked me about, oh. hey, what's going on? What's happening? What is, you know, there was just always questions and things that surfaced, but nobody ever mm-hmm. came to the the child and said, hey. Yeah. And I could see how that would um feed into the self-contempt of feeling mm-hmm. like you weren't valuable, that they exactly. didn't have the courage to to reach towards you and see how you were doing with your brother's death and also with um, the allegations, you know, that were kind of floating around. Yeah, it was it was just a really, um, I mean, all of the, that was anything from five to, to 13. It's very cloudy. I have very few memories oh, sure. in there because most of it's been kind of shut out. But I mean, during that time, my mother left the home and, you know, so I didn't have a mom. I had a stepmother who didn't care for me. So there were just all these things going against me. And I just really felt like, you know, I wasn't the pick of the litter, which Mm -hmm. is kind of funny because I'm actually the only girl with four older brothers. So most people would think in that situation, the little girl would have been treated like some little princess or something. But I feel like I just kind of got lost. Mm -hmm. Mom, mom, whatever happened, it already shifted for her. And I was just kind of the lost little girl out there. So you talked about um, being homeless as a teenager. Was that at during the time that you lived with your dad and your stepmom? Um, that was at 16. So um, mom came back into my life around eight and a half, nine years old. And I moved in with her when I was nine. Um, so at that point, I'm living with my mom. Um, the person at this point who's molesting me is my stepbrother, who's at my dad's home. But I lived with my mom, so I only had to encounter that on weekends. Um, And just another little side note, I never spoke up about that one again because I also, at eight years old, heard my um, stepmother telling somebody when, you know, questions started to surface about whether or not her son was hurting me or not. Um, Again, and I say these things because they're very important to know that at eight years old, I'm 52 now. At eight years old, I heard this being said, and I've never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. I can still remember the sound of her voice. Everything is so cloudy, and then... That detail I got. And this is my stepmother on the phone with one of the neighbors, you know, and um, 
back in the 70s, everything was a very family oriented within neighborhoods, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I had I had lived there my whole life and I felt she was the newbie. Right. right. So how dare you talk to people in my community? But anyway, she was talking to somebody on the phone and I overheard her say, well, if anything did happen, she asked for it. So, you know, so here I am just a few months earlier. I think that I've just made a prayer to God and killed my brother. And now I hear this woman say, well, absolutely. If he yeah. touched her, she asked for it. And I'm eight Yeah, and why would old. you speak up after that? Yeah. So I didn't, you know. And so that's what, at 13, the judge said I didn't have to go stay weekends at my dad's anymore. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason oh, that stopped. That was the end of Yeah. That. So I was still living with my mother, though, and at 16 years old, we had got into it, and she basically um, had invited her brother and um, his family, which is a wife and a daughter, to come move in with them. They had these plans to move out to Kingsville area and, and whatnot, and um, and they were going to take over my bedroom, and, you know, I was just really perturbed by that, and we didn't get along much. And mom just kind of told me that she was tired of my smart mouth. So I needed to figure it out because they were coming and I was giving up my room and I kind of had it. And I said, you know what? I'm leaving. And then I left her home and she never even reached out for probably a year to even figure out where I was at. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's when I, I became homeless again at 16. I mean, I, I left there. I went and stayed with my brother for a few weeks. That didn't work out. Um, and I had a boyfriend at the time who helped me get a car spent $300 on my first car. And yeah, I ended up living in my car for several months. Mm. So during this time, did you feel like you had despair? I mean, you had had so many things traumatically happen to the age of 16. You're living in your car. The unfortunate part about it, Anne, is it really, um, I was already in survival mode by 16. Oh, you know, so things didn't feel, feel like despair so much as they felt like this is life. Mm. It was, it was normal. Yeah, this was normal. It's just the next choice that I had to make, you know, and you just keep moving and keep going. That's kind of, I was already in that process. Wow. Yeah, that makes me so sad. For yeah. You. Well, I mean, as I, you know, also said in my story, I, I'd already been raped before I was 16. You know, I was 13 when that happened. Oh, my goodness. And so, yeah. So by 16, you know, moving out and living in your car kind of felt more like freedom than it felt like disparity well and probably in your car you could protect Mm -hmm. yourself and the other places probably really felt scary it did it did it was it's funny you say that because as you say that like yeah I felt least protected at home you know I felt more protected yes that's where you should be protected right but at 16 years old most of my companions were people that I only knew for maybe a month or two of my life and then they were gone like I couldn't even tell you half of their names. Mm. It was just, you know, I worked at a hotel, you know, so I'd party with the 20, over 20 year olds, you know, things like that. I was in clubs and all this time I'm still trying to attend high school. So I'm living in my car, taking a shower in the morning at a friend's house, going to school, going to job, like working. None of your friend's parents recognized that you needed somebody. But again, you don't make a lot of close friendships Mm -hmm. and you don't keep them very long because of um being injured by the people you were attaching to you think or I think that's part of it and you've just you've been taught how to just kind of keep family secrets and the best way to keep secrets is not to get close to people that's true yeah and then they also don't have to see this ugly side of me that I think that I'm I'm positive that's what I am right sure 
So yeah. if you don't let somebody in, then they don't get to know how yeah. how disgusting you are inside because that's how you're walking around feeling. Mm -hmm. So I think it was more, I had already developed this structure of just not letting people in. I hadn't thought about how you would have to protect yourself to protect the secrets. Mm -hmm. um, so your friend that you made, you said you were in your 30s when you mm -hmm. met her. And how did you meet her? So... She's like my amazing story because everything about that relationship was absolutely planned out by God. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this awesome relationship came to me because I'd been arrested for prostitution mm. and I was arrested in um, Kansas City, Kansas in Wynut County, which is a unified government. So there, even if the city police arrest you, if they choose, they can put you on a state charge because it's a unified government, so it works differently. Um, and so they were looking at giving me prison time for prostitution. And thankfully, there was a person who worked in the, um, like the probation office or whatever, mm -hmm. which I got to go meet with them first to see if they could come up with a diversion plan for me. And they were kind of new at, at that point in time at kind of diverting people to resources instead of just criminalizing people. Um, so I was like the first person that they're guinea pig. Um, so I had to go meet with this court person first. And it just so happened that her friend worked with this agency, Veronica's Voice. Mm -hmm. And they had this plan. And she's like, I've never really worked with them, but would you consider going there and doing a program with them and, and you know, seeing what that's about? And I was like, sure, let's go for this place. Let's check out Veronica's Voice. And so I had to go every Friday. And there was this woman there and her two kids would be with her most of the time. And she just loved to come in and her family would cook meals for the Friday events. You know, we had groups and stuff on Fridays. So she would just come in because there was a kitchen in this little place where they had and she would just cook us this, these, this food. And it was amazing food. It wasn't like somebody coming in and making hot dogs or just serving pizza to everybody. Like she really put her heart into this food and it was like healthy. And you could tell, like, you know, her and I started talking about the food and she was so happy that she'd be like, well, I sneaked, you know, this into here, <laughs> you know, maybe it was some spinach into the salad that nobody would notice. And, you know, to kind of improve the health of people just to like one day, at least get something wonderfully nutritious inside of them. Um, so through that, her and I just started discussing that and food and I love food and I love to cook. Yeah, and so we started talking about that and we had children, the same age groups and we had, you know, so it was just like, we had all these connections and lo and behold, one day in our conversation, we find out not only did we both attend at that time, KCBT, but we also both went to the same Sunday morning fellowship, but that fellowship was about 300 people. Oh, Wow. So we were already, had been crossing paths you just didn't know. and didn't know it. Wow. Um, you know, Graceway's a big church. Yeah. There's no way God didn't orchestrate that. Yeah. You know, like really, so we have these connections and all these points keep hitting. And I think one of the reasons he did that for me in particular is because I wasn't connecting with the other women coming to the group yet. And so I felt like an outcaster still. Tell me why you weren't connecting. So Veronica's Voice is an organization um, to help women of sexual exploitation and trafficking. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's why I got put there because I did, you know, had my pimp boyfriend or whatever, and that's mm -hmm. who I was working with. So I had all the check boxes and 
but most of the other women that actually get filtered through this program are persons that are actually walking Independence Avenue, you know, walking the streets okay. to, to earn their money. Most of those women, just because of what they do, just because of the general nature of their background and everything else, drugs are just part of a daily life, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Um, so to answer your question, no, I use drugs and things, but I wasn't addicted to drugs. I didn't right. have to, I didn't wake up and had to get high. I wasn't looking for my next fix. I didn't turn tricks to feed my drug addiction. Mm -hmm. I was a girl who I, I used the internet. I was on the internet. I, you know, that's how I met my tricks. I would go meet them in hotels, you know, mm -hmm. fancy places like the hotels were $500 a night, you know, so I didn't connect to them. I'm looking at them and I'm like, you know, what do I have in common with you? So you know, I know where I was sleeping last night. Yeah. And yeah, even though I may have been homeless, you know, like even when I was homeless at 16, again, I worked at a hotel. So mm -hmm. I would use sex to trade out for free rooms. And so I, if, to me, it felt like I was living like this movie style life and they weren't. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I worked through that and it only took a few months to realize that I was exactly like every single one of those women. God knew you weren't going to connect with them. Yeah. And he put Amanda there he did. Um, for you to connect with. And I love to hear how she stuck around on the good and the bad days. And She did. There were just days that I was just like, you know, I would go in and I don't think ever one single time I've ever said a curse word about her in particular, you know, but I know there were days that I would just go in and just blow up and, you know, every curse word in the world would just fly out of my mouth and I'm just like, Bleh. and she would just be like, okay, so what do you need? Like, you know, what can I do? And I'd just be like, but wait, didn't you just hear how I just was being horrible about this, that, or the other? And she just looked past that. It was never about what I said or how, you know, how I was expressing my feelings. She kind of understood that there was something else there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and she was, she always stood up for me too, you know, just in small little situations, I could kind of see her including me in things. And mm -hmm. I felt like part of the family without ever being told, hey, you're part of this family. Oh, love that. Yeah. And you you probably at that point were just just really needing a safe family. Absolutely. Absolutely, I did. But by my 30s, I um, had gone through my divorce. And after my divorce, um, my husband, who, you know, I'd been in a, uh, it was just a one-income family, but he made a six-figure salary. And he had... Um, started drinking again and so our family dissolved and I couldn't take care of my children you know I went from having this six-figure salary to now I have to get a job and the most I could find to make was $13 an hour I was yeah. just a and high school graduate yeah. yeah and I and we lived in the summit and I couldn't afford rent at the lowest Mm -hmm. place there in, in Lee's seminar on $13 an hour. And there was never any child support, anything like that. It was only what I could bring in mm. and I, and I couldn't. So my children ended up, I ended up moving them in with my um, brother and my sister-in-law. That's gotta be the epitome of the low point in my life. Interesting. Knowing I that curious. I couldn't take care of my kids anymore. They were the one thing that I felt like, you know, if I could do something in this world, right, it would be these children. Mm. And I just knew that I had to make the choice for what was best for them. And that meant not dragging them with me mm -hmm. because I was looking at having to move into the inner city, not being able to care for my kids. It, it broke me in a way that mm -hmm. I can't even explain. I felt like I was just in a very depressed state for several years after that. Was that another point where you said you tried to commit suicide during that time? It actually is. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was the second time that I attempted to commit suicide. Um, 
that one was just feeling the the inability to be a mom and the pressure of that just came down on me and then looking around at the situation because by that time I had gotten myself into the prostitution and I was under the demand of somebody else's terms and you know I had a full-time job uh you know a, a good job um Again, I was only a high school graduate, but I was making 40-ish a year. And that was good money for somebody mm-hmm. who had never, yeah. you know, done more than that. And, you know, I could I could maintain something decent. I could get something in a neighborhood where I could have gotten my kids back and, and things like that. But I just kept burying myself in with the wrong people and trying to numb all that sadness, you know. Mm-hmm. So you see this other lifestyle. Hey, these people are always just partying and they're doing this and doing that. So it looks great. And maybe that's fun and maybe that'll make me feel better, right? Mm-hmm. And so I fell so deep in that. And so I'm looking around. I'm like, what have I got myself into? Like, this is not what I thought that my plan was. And mm-hmm. so it, I felt like any time I tried to, to build a hope or, or start something new, it just got knocked down. And so I, I was just sitting in the midst of that. And I felt I couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that time I attempted, um, both times actually when I attempted was pills. Um, and this one, I actually drove away from my home, took all the pills in a Piggly Wiggly parking lot. And I called somebody and I didn't tell them exactly where I was, but that person came searching until they found me. The Lord obviously yeah. was at work even, even then. So how long from that point was it until you met Amanda? And it would have happened within that next following year. And so Amanda welcomed you into her family. What do you feel like the turning point was at this? Obviously, her friendship. What were the things that were in place that started helping you take steps out of that lifestyle? So, I mean, once I finally just kind of felt that love from her, and it just felt different, you know? It, di- it didn't feel... Like there was a price tag attached to it, mm-hmm. you know, and everything else, there was always a price. I was absolutely taught and schooled in life that everything came with a price. And so I think that was the first time that I felt like, no, I, she's not asking anything from me. Mm-hmm. She's just giving to me. Um, and so that opened the door to allowing others to help. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. So because when you're somebody like me and there's a lot of us out there in the world that accepting help, it's not about pride. It's about knowing that everybody's let you down. So you're the stupid one if you let people step in and help you because they're just going to go away, mm-hmm. right? And then you'll be back to where you started. So why even try? And that's that's one thing a lot of people don't understand when you know they drive down the street and something I wish I could explain to people. For them to ask for help is it's almost worse than dying. You, I don't know how to explain it. It's like releasing every vulnerability and every last ounce of control you have left. And that's just an overwhelming feeling. You know, I mean, we all need to get to that place and give it all over to God. Sure. But right. we, we all fight it. Mm-hmm. And so some people just don't understand the less you have, the harder it is to step and ask for that help. Because when you have less and less, then you're like, I don't, there's nothing left to take. So I have to hold on to this last ounce that's Mm -hmm. left. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So having somebody love you without a price tag was, was that thing. Mm -hmm. And then it, it opened that avenue to just let me say yes 
to other people helping me. Mm -hmm. And so I got to the point where, you know what, if that help comes with a limitation, then I'm going to take it to that limitation and then move on. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's what it's right. The whole other door opening kind of thing. So yeah, you write it out. And as long as you're not being harmed by it, then it was meant for you to take and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to school and then got your master's degree. And uh, you talked in your story about how God's used this to turn your pain into your power, I think you said. Yes. So tell tell us a little bit about that, what you're doing. And... So, um, again, God led me into all of this. I went through the purpose-driven life. Mm-hmm. And in that study, at some point in the book, it talks to you, it tells you, you know, like to ask other people what is what you're good at. Because sometimes we're so blocked in ourselves or we have this certain vision of ourselves that we miss the obvious things. Mm-hmm. And so I went and asked three people, what did you think I'd be good at? Where should I go? You know, I need to be doing something else. Well, I went and asked three different people. And these three different people didn't say, well, you know, I think you might be good at every single one of them said, have you ever heard about Rediscover and the programs they have? Hey, did you know there's this place called Rediscover? One of them I asked was my brother's sis. Did you, did you know Rediscover does this thing? Da, 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 da. So, wow. They all three specifically gave me this name of this agency, Rediscover. And so I was like, I guess I'm going to have to go see what kind of jobs they have at Rediscover. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure this is God. Right. And so um, I got this job as a council tech, which is kind of an entry level position in any mental health agency. Um, and I took it and I was working with young adults, 18 to 26 years old. And just, you know, a lot of them were coming out of foster care, homelessness, you know, things like that. And they just didn't have basic life skills at all. And the first thing that I noticed right away were all these girls that were trading sexual favors out for things, you know, and like, how can we break this cycle? And, and so I would sit down with them and I would give them a stern talking to, you know how well that works? Not at all. <laughs> it did not work at all. Um, and I realized, you know what, there's gotta be tricks to this, right? Cause I'm not doing it very well. You know, we thought, oh no, you're just going to learn. Cause I'm going to tell you, I didn't learn that way. Right. I didn't learn that way. So I don't know why I thought they were going to learn that way. So, yeah. So I just started talking to my other colleagues and people that I was starting to form friendships with. Cause now I was learning, Hey, you can have friendships. And the other thing about, um, Amanda was that she was a female. So I absolutely did not trust females. And I think that got broken from my mom leaving the home so when okay. I was so young. Um, but I could never have a relationship with a female. And so now I was forming these bonds with these successful, you know, professional women and younger, older, like all different ages. It was just like this new arena for me. So I just started talking to them, you know, how can I grow this? How can I be better? And everybody started talking to me about college. So that was like the first one I was like, really, you guys want me to go to college? Like, you know that like I barely got out of high school. Like I had to like do like a correspondence course, like three years later, just like, are you serious right now? Like they treated me like I was stupid. It was school was horrible for me. I hated every moment of school. Just as God does, he just kept sending it through another person and another person. And so I was like, fine. So I threw my hands up and I said, (laughs) fine. So I was in college at the same time my kids were. Tell our listeners what you're doing now. So now I, I did go all the way through. And, and again, I'm, I'm older when I start. I'm 43 years old when I start school. So I had investigated exactly what do I have to do to get to this master's degree? Sure, How long yeah. is that going to take? So I had my six-year plan. And I followed through my six-year plan. I graduated. 
So by the time I was 50 years old, I was a, had a master's degree and um, I took that and I got my licensure. So I'm a licensed social worker and I actually, um, hopefully within the next couple of months, should be sitting down for, to take my clinical licensure. And I am a program manager at a crisis center and we mostly serve, um, we serve persons with acute mental health disorders, um, substance abuse disorders, co-occurring disorders, but about 80 to 85 percent of our clientele are homeless. And um, just studies, if you look at the studies of homelessness and things like that, it's an extremely large percent of those persons are encountering trafficking, mm-hmm. sexual exploitation, mm-hmm. you know, um, using drugs as a, a way to live and not, you know, as a means to party, which, you know, a lot of people sure. kind of get that mis- they, they don't understand drug use, but, right. um, so yeah, so now here I am just, that's what I do. I never, I always thought I wanted to do direct care. And then once I got my degree and kind of moved into management, I see the, um, greater reach that you have when you're kind of on the management side. So you can actually start changing policies mm-hmm. and help others learn, you know, procedures and help change the language and just the way we approach it and the the stigmatism. I just, I feel like now I have that bigger reach Mm -hmm. because of where I am. So, well, I'm super proud to be your friend and you've just overcome so much. Yeah. Your story is really incredible. I mean, I could talk to you all day. (laughs) Um, So if someone hears your story and they are connecting to part of your story, um, would you be willing for them to reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know that uh, each time I've been around Wendy, I've heard just a little bit more of her story and she just has so much insight and, and wisdom. Thank you for being brave and sharing your story. I know um, it, parts of it were hard to share, but I know that it's gonna impact other people's lives. Yeah. I get to hear it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Graceway's She Is podcast. We pray that today's episode encouraged you and gave you hope for your own journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified about future episodes.